0: my view is that a person's life starts with their earliest memory obviously they existed before then because who were you before that time you obviously did exist but some people's memories are earlier than others and in my case they're validated to go back to the age of nine months and that is the beginning of my autobiographical memory i have loads of memories from that time and they are living and they are vital to this day i can feel them I can experience them through the reconstruction of the sensory perceptions from that time. And it wasn't just things, objects, or even people, it was also the relationship to people. And beyond that, to the landscape that was visible f- through um, the back of the house, out across a small river, a water meadow, and the trees and fields beyond. One tree in particular, a huge oak tree, which was full of ravens, and um, seemed, I now understand, to be numinous. It was numinous, I didn't have that word to articulate it, but I could feel it, I could relate to that tree, and what was it somehow that was attracting all of those dark birds to it? And I was very aware of the procession of the seasons, the change in weather, I would watch lightning strikes in the field. Um, There was a fox hunt that would ride past the bottom of the garden, And it was an amazing spectacle for a young child to see these scarlet-coated riders and all of the hounds. Uh, It was literally like having a gigantic television set that was running from horizon to horizon, horizontally and vertically, and all of those sense impressions impacting upon me. And somehow I had to abstract myself out from that to have any sense of identity and action on the world and I did that by turning around looking the other way and there was a street and our houses opposite and there were my friends. This was preschool but that's where all the activity was but that way the reverse out the back of the house was the river that ran from left to right. Always, never changed direction and it was only much later that I realised the significance of that particularly for a right handed person and that somehow symbolised in an intuitive way the movement of energy from the unconscious to consciousness. And if you followed the river in those days, you could see about a mile away the beginnings of civilization. But if you look to the left, as far as the eye could see, it was country. And as I say, that that was quite an amazing spectacle. And I try to relate to that through my relationship to my parents, to my father, who was uh, an ISTJ in Myers-Briggs terms. And not a very emotionally expressive man, was of the world and its materialness uh, materiality my mum was uh an isfp would you say yes yeah, probably. yeah 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 um and she i believed understood everything about the land i don't now think that she did at all in fact i know from her past and for her autobiography she's very much a city girl and uh great with a sense of community uh, an extended family, but she was a Liverpool girl from Everson, uh, Grew up there, and that's where her energy was. But I didn't know that.
1: No, to a, to a child, it would have seemed like she had inestimable depth,
0: Yes, actually. And that, uh, yes, yeah. and and, and yeah. that's and she was the earliest imprinter of my relating function. And she kind oh. of stood in in between the countryside, the natural environments, and me. <coughs> and also between me and my father, excuse me, <coughs> I'm going to have to clear my throat. Sorry. Okay. said. oh, it's a nuisance. <coughs> yes, yeah, she also stood between me and my father, the real world, and a man of little expressed feeling. Everything was concrete. There was a lack of intuition, and then I had an older brother, who was somehow diluted into my mother's psyche. He, he, she was very, very. He was very, very close to her and she was to him and uh, he was very and still is he's seven years older than me he's very absorbed into himself and self-sustaining whereas i felt this urge to be in that world that i could see beyond the fence at the bottom of the garden and uh He helped me to interact with the wildlife there, like water bowls and the fish, and uh, even on occasion like a a weasel or a stoat or a fox with fox cubs would would wander around and it would be absolutely fascinating, but it was a definite boundary where it became visual and also sensory in the sense that you could experience the smells, you could experience the sunlight, the the wind and the rain. This was a very young child. I had this urge to get out there and into it. And as I grew, I did do that. I also felt an increasing separation from my family but I didn't find a home with my friends. My friends were not impressed in the same way as I was with that environment. They did interact with it but it didn't impress on them in depth and my early dreams, I can still remember them, also suggested that there was a separation between myself and the rest of my family in a way that I think foreshadowed the future and the direction I was going to go in. At the age of 11, uh, my mother went through the change and the land was destroyed by the building of a motorway and a massive uh, junction, which is about, if you follow it all the way around, it's a mile actually if you, if you go around the loop of it, so it shows you how much of that land was excavated out. The river was, was effectively destroyed as well. It was all dug out and turned into a culvert and uh, factories and warehouses were built out there as well and the shock of that to my psyche plus my mum going unbuffered through the the change just as i was being as a hit adolescence and there was a break if you like in the relationship between my mum and my dad at that time because he didn't understand what was happening to my mum meanwhile my brother who was seven years old who's 18 he was an adult he was already world focused and moving away and In order to retain some kind of sense of contact with the land, I felt this this urgency to understand what I now know and didn't know then was psychology. So my brother handed me the collected works of Sigmund Freud, probably in in the belief that going into adolescence that would be of some use to me. It didn't really help me at all. I I was too young to understand it, obviously, um, but it did have some effect and uh, that led me into all sorts of issues I became uh, involved heavily with peer groups gangs if you like um, both locally and I would used to go over to Liverpool as well To Liverpool 8, uh, Toxtaff and the Dingle where I had cousins on my mum's side. I'd get uh, involved in all sorts of shenanigans over there and this was very much to do with um, that process of initiation through a peer group which my father had failed to confirm in me um but that sense of loss of the land and that loss of relating was there which always drew me back towards things like history mythology comparative religion that kind of thing and uh, when i went to school i would, I would bunk out i was a expert bunker outer i would be out the nearest window and over the hills and far away down to the nearest library I'm talking about 11, 12 years old, and I would be studying <coughs> whatever interested me. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, after I did this, James. No, it's all good. You're doing really well. <coughs> <coughs> and I'd start picking up books on psychology outside of Freud at that point, and this was really fascinating because I was trying to understand why I was different outside of the peer group, outside of relating to the gangs, um and my peers at, at that time i had almost nothing in common with my friends and um, because i was pulled towards this deeper need to understand something that my father couldn't uh, give me because he was very uh shall we say uh concrete and uh, unambitious unenlightened although to be fair to him he did introduce me to astronomy and he bought me telescopes and he taught me to farm my way around the constellations and the planets and the sky, something which I can still do now, almost with my eyes closed, farm my way around the, around the sky. I now know that was his personal myth. That was him trying to understand something. He'd lost his religion through the Second World War and what he went through there. And uh, he he was not an educated man. He tried self-education. He tried to improve himself in that way. But he had a cynicism about him, which was eating away on the inside, that I now know was his negative anima, and uh, that prevented him from relating properly. Then I had a dream, it was a weird dream, and as happened so often when I was a child, I would dream of, of the fields as they used to be and the river full of life which was at that time dead. Was, there was nothing in it, completely gone, It's polluted. You could see chemicals floating it. It and it couldn't have been more destroyed than it was. I had this dream and I was at the bottom of the garden and I, I looked between the wire fence down this small sloping bank into the stream and on it was what appeared to be a rugby ball or American football, the same shape and it was on fire, burning. I was fascinated and I looked at it. And then I heard a disembodied voice and the voice said, it is an egg, which I thought was really strange. So I thought, I'll try and get this burning egg. So I, the fence disappeared and I went down the bank to get hold of it and it moved and it drifted off onto the field. I'm meant to follow this egg. So I did, and then I was in the large field that was beyond where the crow's tree was, the raven's tree, that numinous tree and there was a desk and there was a chair and then there was a semicircle of chairs and there were women sitting in the chairs and I was to sit at the desk so I sat at the desk and then the women started to talk to me about what I now know to be deep psychological problems at the time I couldn't have understood that but I felt this this need to communicate a, a healing message to them and of course you know when you're around 12 years of age and you have a dream like that it's a bit strange it's out of time because the landscape is from the past but the suggestion is of something i've not experienced <coughs> so perhaps that was in the future um i'd always had well, always i've had a recurring dream from childhood as well which was important to me um so important it, it's turned up in one of the the, the the screenplays that paul and i put together later in life and in that dream i would wake up in the middle of the night um, everyone would be asleep the entire world my world as far as my perception could go were asleep uh, the sun was was down it was gone but the sky was lit with a silver light and there was no obvious source for that light there was no sun no moon it was just a silver light that illuminated everything with no shadow and in the dream i would walk out and I'd explore and i would meet strange people not like aliens they were just people i didn't know <clears throat> and they would try and teach me things or tell me things and i would do my best to absorb it and i would know that i would have to go back to bed wake up and try to remember what i'd learned but i couldn't talk to anybody about it because they didn't know there was this other world that you could go to when you're asleep where there would be a different kind of light and that you could learn things i had that dream probably repeatedly until i did become a therapist which was many years later When the time came to adjust to the realities of life um, I had a a choice. My my dad uh, was in the Navy in the war, I had two uncles in the Navy, Uh, I had a grandfather in the Navy, everybody was in the Navy. My brother even tried as a reservist for a while and my dad wanted me to go in the Royal Navy. And I thought I wanted to and then I realised that it was all him and it wasn't me um And I was literally about to sign on a dotted line to go back to do that. And I said, no, I can't do it. And then it was, what the hell am I going to do? Because I've wasted an awful lot of my education, my formal education, educating myself in, in ways that other people found rather strange for someone of my age. And uh I came home and there was a program on the telly in the afternoon and it was, uh, it was called Van der Volk, which was a, a Dutch it was set in Holland anyway police series and I looked at it and something said to me well you could do that and I thought don't be daft because I'm not exactly the best friend of the police i would had a number of little uh, little run-ins with them over the years nothing particularly serious just mainly for getting in trouble with, with, with gangs and fighting and what have you so under the intuition I went up to the local police station and had an encounter there with a very amusing guy, um, a caricature, and as a result of what he said to me, I went down to another police station and uh, presented myself there. Had a chat with the police woman on the desk. I went home, I got home, there's a police car there already waiting with some forms, sign on the line and we'll send an inspector around to give you an initial interview. And before I knew it, it was in the police. And I thought, how the hell did that happen? Um, but well, it's it's real world, and it's going to give me an opportunity to pressure test my beliefs, the the core values that I brought through. Um, so I ended up in that. I encountered him um, in a book, which was the I Ching, the forward to the I Ching by Richard Wil- Wilhelm, Well Wilhelm, the Richard Wilhelm translation and i'd already been into uh chinese culture for some years very very well versed in that and its mysticism um very deep into chinese culture directly through chinese people in liverpool's chinatown which is the oldest chinatown in europe very deeply established with that so it wasn't just you know third hand or anything like that or by proxy this was direct experience uh, from that age Um, My brother had got me into martial arts when I was nine. My dad boxed in the Navy, Um, so all of that came in handy when I was going for my gang phase, I guess. Um, But this was such a different thing, what a mind. That this fellow Mm. understood China, it seemed to me. In a way, even perhaps the Chinese didn't understand themselves. And more than that, it was a mirror. I could hold up to myself. Could, when, when you said this guy understands China, could you say Carl Jung? You have an oh yeah. Of the name Carl, Jung. yeah. Uh, Carl Jung, who wrote the uh, the foreword to the Richard Wilhelm translation of the I Ching, understood China more even than the Chinese understood themselves. And it was a mirror I could hold up to understand myself. At last there was someone, I, w- I was reading sorts to psychology by this age. Um, uh, mainly believe it or not i've got some of the books still on the bookshelf because obviously once once you start relationships or you think you're starting relationships uh, and you've had some uh, knowledge of psychology you want to get some kind of understanding about what's happening to you Uh, but it was something you could tell there was no lived experience in it it was all academic uh, and unrelatable to the realities of the street if you like I knew the adult world was a much bigger world than the world of adolescence, but the world of adolescence was where I was operating. That and the inertia from childhood as well, because childhood does create an inertial drag on your psyche as you evolve. The impressions are so fundamental, they lay the ground for your later experiences. So in the midst of all of that turmoil, I was trying to find a psychological model that would make sense. Uh, Freud was too sophisticated in some ways and too unsophisticated in others, academic psychology was abstract and unlived and suddenly there was this guy Carl Gustav Jung who was writing amazing things about the Chinese psyche that went beyond anything that I had ever experienced and also it held up a mirror for me to understand myself in a way that I could never have understood myself otherwise. Yes, and in that mirror then, I saw a perfect negative image of myself insofar as I could see my maladaptations and how they'd accrued up until that point. And you could call that the shadow, I guess. Um, It was a shock, but it was also enlightening. Because when I delved deeper into Jung, which I did very, very rapidly, I found the greatest hope in that man's writing. I have never ever found his writings to be troubling at all, (laughs) apart from that first initial shock. Uh, After that, no matter what I read, whether it was Ion, anything like that, no, no, no problem. Uh, He was lighting the way ahead for others to follow. He cast his own shadow across that path, as we all do, but there was nothing in there that I found distressing. A lot to contemplate. Uh, an awful lot to assimilate, but not to be scared of. And I I think that's a real issue with the way that Jung is being portrayed at the moment on uh, on the internet. You see an awful lot of darkness cast around him. If he had been like that, he could not have been effective Mm. in any way at all as a therapist, because if you start casting a shadow around, you damage people uh, that you're working with. And he was acutely and chronically as well, aware of the dangers of psychological infection So in that sense, uh, Jung is enlightening. He's not a figure of darkness and we should not approach him in that way. I wouldn't have got through adolescence if that had been the case at all. But yeah, I I found someone that that gave me a way to understand myself, to understand my past, uh, to understand why I'd gotten into the Chinese community and deeper than that into Eastern philosophy, meditation, and all the other things I was into by that age and also a way potentially to understand relationships because of his model of the anima uh, and of the psychological developments that accompanies that. I did, though, have some issues right from the start because it seemed too straight, too straight in the sense that there was very little deviation from the path that he was describing. And I put that down to the fact that You have to have a structure in order to embrace the flexibility of life, paradoxically. But I think it was different to that insofar as there were limitations with respect to just how much flexibility it could accommodate. But it was very, very interesting. Because I was into symbolism, I'd always analysed my dreams. I'd studied mythology. I've still got early books on mythology there. One of which my mother got for me (coughs) in her role as the anima. Uh, and I remember, actually, I looked through it, and um, she said that, well, all these different cultures have mythology, so I went through it, and what said, where's, where's the Jewish mythology, Mum? And she said, oh, no, that's the Bible. Oh, and that was another moment of enlightenment. You mean it's not true, Mum? And she was a superstitious Christian. She wouldn't answer, but that had sowed a seed so that's mythology and then later i encounter Jung and his work on mythology and although he does push uh, the christian myth as being very very closely entwined to his own he also engaged many many other cultures in a relativistic sense including the oriental psyche and uh, not just chinese japanese but indian as well and from him i learned the importance of india to connect the West to the East. This is the essential bridge between the two. And that linked in with my interest in history and what had happened with uh, Alexander the Great and the Hellenic period that followed that, which was a true syncretism between East and West. I found that hugely interesting. But one of the, the problems of encountering all of this is it put me even further out of kilter with the reality of my everyday life. What the hell was I going to school for? I wasn't learning anything there. I was learning everything I needed to know, I felt, from the future and to understand my past and my present in Carl Jung and in all of the other areas of life that I was engaged with. At the same time, I was under instinctive pressure. So I was belonging to gangs while I was reading Carl Jung. Um, In those days, they were called bother boys because we used to give people a lot of bother. And I did, I was very bothersome as Pauline knows, because she knew people that grew up with me and told her what I used to be like, which was a little unfortunate, but it didn't put you off me, did it? I
1: think you were starting to transform at the point that, that we met.
0: Yeah, I'd already been in the police a few yeah. years, but anyway, but apart yeah. from that, um, I had the tribal element, which was like a box, and I lived in that box. Then there was school and the adaptations to that. Then there was the family, which I just didn't fit in with. But nevertheless, it had created this inertial drag on my personality. It had set limits on it. Uh, For example, my father was the most atrocious driver I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. And because he was bad at it, my elder brother believed he could never drive a car. So he ended up in motorbikes, and he fell off them frequently, and once when he hit a car, and that was it. And he's never ridden a bike, and he's never driven in his life. But he had this authoritarian quiet solid concrete authoritarianism about him which meant that you believed you you would absorb this you believed you could not exceed his ceiling that meant that I couldn't drive I really believed I couldn't Mm. I'd be no good at it because he wasn't and I ended up being a class 1 advanced police pursuit driver the very top trained level standard it's possible to get uh, and I, I passed it at the class one level nearly a hundred percent in everything uh in pursuit in uh what they would call a, a standard road driver it was a at advanced level skid pan skid pan pursuit you actually had to pursue people around a skid pan through obstacle courses theory everything 100 percent in everything that was much much later but that just shows the influence sometimes negatively the inertial drag of your parents because very often the problems that parents have manifest themselves in the children to a higher degree than the parents themselves the parents are unconscious of them but children absorb the psyche of the parents i learned this from young theoretically and then tested it in my own life and then later in the life of other people and it is true that if if you have Exposure to, to the inadequacies of your parents. You will amplify those inadequacies in your own life Implicitly and then tacitly without challenging them. So I was suffering very much from the limitations of my own parents all of that was going on and as uh, I, I have uh, said I had been almost programmed by expectations to go into the Navy um, I didn't want to, particularly, although I was unconscious of the fact that I didn't want to, because again, my dad didn't reach very high rank. He wanted me to compensate for that. That was his dream, and I went along with it because I was imprinting the masculine role onto him. And I realised that if I did that, I would lose a lot. I would, I would lose my contact with the Chinese community and all the mysticism around that, uh, and uh, the engagement with things in depth. I I would lose my connection to martial arts because I couldn't practice it Um, at sea. I would lose Jungian psychology and chances are I wouldn't get a life partner. It's very difficult if you're on an aircraft carrier with a few thousand other guys in the middle of an ocean on a six month to a year deployment. You're just not going to meet, your life will pass you by. I thought this isn't a good idea, but what am I going to do because I've wasted so much time academically in that conventional sense, although I've been educating myself, self-education as hard as I could, and that's when I saw that advert on the television, not advert, sorry, it was uh, Van der Volk, the TV series, 1970s, about a Dutch detective. Uh, I thought, I could do that, I like the idea, I like the forensic idea, because that links into analysis, (laughs) and so I went to the local police station, where I was known anyway, um, mainly for for fighting and related activities, Um, and I got there and this this rotund officer emerged from the door with uh, signs of recently consumed food around his mouth, in fact some of it was still circulating, it looked like a washing machine. (laughs) And he looked me up and down, and I was there in my bother boots and my uh, crombie and my braces and my uh, 28-inch parallel jeans and my Ben Sherman shirt and all the rest of it. And he said, and this may have to be bleak, what the fuck do you want? And I said, I want to be like you, (laughs) smirking. And he said, fuck off. He He said, no, no, I'm serious, honestly, I want to join the police. He said, I'm having me scoff, fuck off. And he turned around to go away. And then he stopped and he turned around, looked over his shoulder again and said, go down to Birkenhead. I'll ring them and tell them that you're gonna go down if you're serious. So yeah, I am. So I jumped on the bus, went down to Birkenhead and there was a police woman on the desk who was uh, quite a pretty girl, you know, which helps, I guess. And um, that was distracting. That was the phone, not the girl. That was a long time ago. Uh, she uh, said, "Well, you go home, and someone will be in touch." By the time I got home, there's a police car already at the house. I thought, oh "God, what's my mum going to think?" They turned up again for me, and um, he had these forms and basically said, "Fill these in. I'll get them back to the neck, and an inspector will come and in interview at, at home." Oh, this is good. Um, and before I knew it, I taught myself and them into joining the police. And then I thought, "What the hell have I done?" Oh well, make the most of it. And I thought this actually paradoxically would be a great way of pressure testing myself physically in terms of my values emotions and so forth and at least i'd have a job and meanwhile i can redirect the course of my education and end up where i want to be which is as a therapist a psychological therapist so i thought i would had it all sorted then real life hit that job at that time was full of men who'd done 30 years in the police and before that had gone through the Second World War and they were not expecting somebody like me to turn up. So the only way to adapt was to over-amp what I had, which was a pile of uh, mysticism, psychology, uh, and other stuff like that. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll become a hippie in police uniform, that'll wind them up, and I did. Uh, and there are photographs, which Pauline threatens me with uh, now and again to make them public. Uh, sitting on filing cabinets, uh, meditating in the sergeant's office, that kind of thing. Did not go down well in 1974, believe me. Um, that was, for those of you who can remember, the Life on Mars TV show, BBC TV show. That was the world of Life on Mars. They were all like that, the Gene Hunt type character. So this this uh, young hippie in a police uniform, that did not go down well. So. That was uh, that was that. That's how I ended up in the police. And um, but yeah, Young's ideas uh, were so so important to me. They gave me that path to make sense of everything, including the mistake of going into the police. I justified that to myself by saying I can pressure test myself here. I've got time. I'm young. I can go and do part time education. I'll do the Open University, which I did. I can do a psychology degree with them and then I'll leave at a certain point, I'll move over and I'll do whatever and it was all gonna be focused on that which meant I was blinkered and I kept walking into problems real life within the police, uh, real life issues and it really, really pressure tested my value set when I was able to make a stand against the things that were dark and wrong within the police service. I fell back on that. I didn't fall back on religion, I fell back on Carl Jung. I fell back on his ideas. That was how I was going to make my stand in that world where there were men with immense life experience compared to me, hard men, really hard men, on both sides of the line, in the police and on the street. That was my compass. It was gonna be Carl Jung's psychology and nothing was gonna to, going to shift me off that. And that's the way that I, I lived my life in that job. Um, of course, this is all about relating which of course brings us into the anima. Yes, so th- they were all issues of relating and making sense of the world and personal mythology and that kind of thing. And as I was saying earlier about uh, about the anima, I-, I was massively impressed by that concept. Nobody else was talking about things like that that I'd experienced. But Jung's evidence is all over the place. It's in the mythology, just like he said it was. And I'd, I'd already read up on that. I could see it through historical characters. And then obviously growing up, you can see it in the relationships that you form or try to form or try to understand. And uh, the thing that got me was the idea of the Platonic form. Because I was all, I was reading philosophers, reading Plato as well, at that early age. I was reading Bertrand Russell and other philosophers um, before I read mm. Young. So I already knew about the idea of the Platonic form, but it seemed to be... Uh, An abstraction, a philosophical abstraction, then suddenly Jung gave me a way of understanding that psychologically. But where he seemed to fall down was on the experience of the instinctive pressure, probably because you're going through it at that age uh, and it's real in that sense. Um, But as Plato talks about when Pauline's kicking me, oh oh no, that was accidentally. No, it didn't feel (laughs) it, but never mind. (laughs) Your idea, yes. You've completely torpedoed I me mean, with with that kick to my right ankle. there you go. Uh, I have a fear. I have a, an understanding of it now that I didn't have then. But the the understanding was that it was latent even at that age, and that's why I feel it has authenticity, and it's it's why I ask the things I do of men now when I work with them in terms of of developing a through line of understanding of their anima. There is a baseline that we are inherit that we inherit each of us, and I think Young is right, Asman, that that is a virtual image. The extent to which it is virtual, though, I I disagree with him. I understand why he said it had no content because he didn't want to be accused of Lamarckianism and um, the idea of an inherited uh, image. But I do now. I am actually convinced, as far as I possibly can be, that. Some elements of that are determined by your ancestors, you, recent ancestors most likely, uh, and they and this is where you get the specificity of that image coming through as a as a type. Um, one thing that I used to say uh, to to men was is if you get five or six men in a room and you get beyond the silliness and you ask them to describe. Uh, this concept once you've introduced the idea that it exists to them of the anime they'll come up with pretty much the same thing once they get past the silly laddie boyo kind of uh, stuff and you actually see a change in their mind that they start to go into a trance the the, the, the face changes the pallor changes the eyes change and you know they're getting there then and they start to feel this familiarity with something which is so old and it's so ancient and it goes right back so I knew that that was the case. and I was also very, very aware of the appearance of the image, not of the substance, but of the image of that baseline for me in my life that joined the dots. And if you like, that's a level which you won't, under voluntary circumstances, uh, go lower than. It's a, it's a baseline. And it'll be biologically determined to some extent. And then above that, you start to get into the more transcendent aspects. But that is a definite baseline. That's what Jung meant by the virtual image. Um, And in my work subsequently with men over the past 40 years, time and time and time again, that has repeated itself without me having to suggest it. But with men who feel lost in terms of their relating function, once they can join the dots up, and grasp the image they're on their way to sorting out the projection of the anima onto surreal women in the outer world they may not necessarily understand what it is that they're projecting but they're getting an understanding of the fact of it and that this image is inborn innate and outside of their normal conscious will and intention so I was wrestling with that all the time because as a young person it's like well you know you're driven instinctively to find someone that you want uh, to spend your life with. Some men will say, no, I don't. I just want to have sex or I just want to have children or as many children as possible with as many women as possible and have fun. There is that adaptation. But with a lot of men, it's not like that. They are looking for a more idealised partner. And at that point, the platonic form takes on a powerful archetypal uh, imago and effect. And... Um, So I was very well aware of that. There's a no fat movement now, I was ahead of the game on that. Because of my aesthetics, I I decided that was that, none of that. Uh, I'm gonna be a spiritual person, I'm gonna be a moral and ethical police officer with a Jungian core to him, and I'm gonna go out and do good things in the world. uh, And I'm gonna find the right girl or I'm gonna have no girl at all at that age. Before that, uh, when I'd been going through my bother boy uh, f- uh, phase, girlfriends were no problem at all. Uh, I had a lot of status within my my peer groups and um, had a lot of interest uh, from girls, some of whom were the best looking girls in the school. And I'm not saying that this is the, to exaggerate, it is the absolute truth. Um, and it was great. But I knew that they, most of them anyway, were not the right kind of girl that I was looking for or was interested in, so my commitment to them was very shallow. Um, so you can see how my own animal was forming and it was being influenced by Jung and by Plato already prematurely at that age. Then I went into the police uh, and uh, I thought, well, no, I'm gonna be patient and I'm gonna find the right girl. Oh, there she is, sat next to me. Um, yeah, I, I, I found Pauline um, which is a story in and of itself but that was a relationship that has endured without break since we were first together which is 42 and a half years ago um, and that in itself is a story because that's uh, it's not as easy as I might have suggested because there are two people uh, and being committed is work, it's not simple, it's and uh, going on a Jungian path together, which she did, also is not an easy thing to do, is it? Love,
1: I guess not. No, <laughs> well, we, we've got a, a wedding anniversary coming up, haven't we? I mean, you always yeah. start from in terms of time the time we met as opposed to well it's
0: we started going out yes yeah, because yeah. yours correct me on that i do i don't yeah. kind of count the wedding anniversary no, because no. my commitment to her was instant from the moment that she agreed to go out with me i was utterly committed to her and that was it i considered that a youngian wedding at that point because i knew i was completely and utterly certain and uh the wedding when we had it was a formality for other people but for me that was it was from that moment mm. um and at the moment I met her, and I know Young said that about his wife, but he and you know, we all know what happened there. It Didn't last particularly very well, but I did. I I, I knew from the moment of meeting her that this was the the girl that I wanted to spend my life with, but she was too young. She was fifteen, and I was nineteen. And I thought I'm gonna have to wait, so um, I did. Uh, I, was a, I was a police officer at nineteen, so I got a message to her her sister's boyfriend who was a policeman and said, uh, tell her I'll come back for her in a year. And uh, he laughed at me. But that was in the December and then the following February we got a Valentine card offer, which I still have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate, but this is it. That was off Pauline. And he handed that to me and I thought, that's my ticket, I'm going back. I'm gonna go back for this girl. And it is we've been together ever since haven't we
1: we have indeed yes
0: yeah through a lot we've been through a lot in our lives it's not been easy uh the young, young mm-hmm. path is not easy path of self-development is not easy mm-hmm. and uh we've had a lot of hate aimed at us over the years uh, light attract shade um not just in an equal amount it seems but a, an overwhelming amount sometimes and uh being committed to, to each other and, and to our life's work has been important, and, and that's the direction that we've gone in. I think Pauline was a bit surprised by me because I was different. Uh, Over to you on that one, but. Um, <laughs> I'll say you were. I, yeah. I, I, I talked about out of body experiences <laughs> and um, all sorts of strange meditative uh, experiences, and Young, Carl Young, mixed mm. in with Monty Python. Yes. Uh, I remember that well. I brought the tricksterish element in there. Yeah. Um, she was 16 at that point and i was nearly 21 so uh yeah do you want to carry on on that one <laughs> <laughs> what
1: you mean going to see monty python no no well, tony
0: well, well well no not that no. Well, with your, <laughs> the ambience around your family and oh gosh. your experience with me maybe
1: <sighs> well i didn't think you were interested in me that's probably the first thing to say
0: it was a clever cunning <laughs> plan that well come to that come on.
1: I, i'm i guess my family reinforced that because they said you know well you know he's coming to see your sister an older sister four and a half years older than me and so that that was my belief is that you were dropping in to see her
0: no so it was true. something
1: of a surprise i must admit
0: well that wasn't true but i thought i'm going to get past her dad and uh, i thought <laughs> the, the only way i'm going to do that i can't i can't say i'm going to turn um, up and uh Carry your sixteen-year-old yes. daughter off when you've got a daughter who's twenty, nearly twenty-one. Yeah. So I'll just pretend. Yeah, but you know. didn't.
1: It was some, I think it was the manner in which you did it when you kind of you raced down the road in your yellow Avenger with all these spoilers and oh, things please. on it and uh,
0: customized. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and he would be looking out of the windows saying, yeah. "Bloody show off!" And I thought, well, well, that's that's a really great way of impressing him, given yeah. that he was a man of limitations, really, he wasn't was, he? Yeah. he and, was, uh, yeah. Um, quite an authoritarian type of man. Roman Catholic, authoritarian, strict Catholic in in, in many respects. And And then, of course, like you say, there's all the martial arts stuff and that. All the weird stuff, yeah. Yeah, nothing like he could ever have possibly wrapped his head around.
0: I was non-drinking, non-smoking, Buddhist, vegetarian, hippie policeman. Yes, everything he wasn't with. With a a (laughs) souped-up, customised car. (laughs)
1: Yes, you were.
0: Yeah with your loo- with arts, your yeah.
1: louvre windows and oh yeah and all, all
0: sorts of things yeah big spoilers and <laughs> yes, air dams and yeah. flared wheel arches yes. and massive wheels and everything yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah it was a hideous thing really wasn't it, it but was, it worked it was yeah <laughs>
0: i endeared her mother to by burying her in the front <clears> room <throat> and, and yes she did put her on the floor yeah. and put the couch on top of her and both chairs on top of her and
1: yes left. And occasionally we go out in the car with you, and you would drop us off somewhere without our shoes on and things like that, and drive off. Yeah, yeah. so you've you've always been tricksterish, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. But given her relationship to my dad, which probably was probably never meant to be no I guess she saw you as being somebody who brought fun and animation yeah. and uh, yeah. joy into the family because yeah. there, there wasn't a whole lot of that to go no. around
0: no there wasn't no
1: so it was it was almost as if the three of us me my sister and my mum were kind of vying for uh for your attention well they
0: were actually and that is the truth <laughs> because he was such an awful animus. He figure. was
1: awful, And yes. of
0: course I sensed that. Yes. Um, yeah. But one day, which was particularly at the time embarrassing, there was uh, yeah. some lads acting suspiciously in the car outside an off-licence around the corner. And I got sent there on foot. And I bent down to speak to them and the seat of my trousers <laughs> ripped right up. Uh, and I had to walk backwards away from them. <laughs> um, I thought, I'm gonna have to get to, where am I going to I can't walk back to the station. That was like two and a half miles away. Uh, Pauline lived about a quarter of a mile away. I thought I'm going to head there and see if one of them will stitch my trousers. Up <laughs> it, and it went back, and uh, I got shown to Pauline's bedroom, handed the trousers through to her mother, and then sat on the bed.
1: And then we fought over them.
0: (laughs) They were fighting over the trousers downstairs. And then the dad who was on night and didn't know decided to stir from his slumber. And then I was sat there with no trousers. (laughs) But a a police tunic tunic on. on, Uh, And my hat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could have always moved it if you'd had to, couldn't you? I
0: thought, I'm not going to be able to explain this. There will not be sufficient time to explain. So (laughs) It's going to be fight or flight. I'm either going to have to fight him or get out the window. Anyway, you won the trousers, didn't you? I did and win the the, the, the trousers and them back yes. in.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So I had to look around her underwear drawer <gasps> and uh, things like that.
1: <laughs> Lots of editing, I think, here, James. <laughs> I can't laugh because it's going to appear on the camera. It's going to be weird. Oh, that's
2: okay. It's okay, <laughs> okay you okay. You'll have to just
0: cut. Anyway, uh, I I I got her into young. You did, I, um, yes. I, I, that copy of Man um, and Symbols, the, the one that's dated 1977, yeah. that you saw James earlier, uh, I lent her that and asked her to read it. I don't know if she did or not, but if I, well, I about.
1: dipped in and out of it. Good girl. <laughs> as you think, you've you've hinted it was something very unfamiliar to me, yeah, really. Because yeah. my all my energies have been outwardly focused probably yes. until that time because I was very sort of people orientated and yeah. um, un- unlike yourself, I did my best to sort of get on in school and uh, to pass the requisite exams and so on. So that was probably the first time I, I turned inwardly. Yeah. So that was probably the beginning of my journey, really. Yeah. And this is a kind of an invitation to the unconscious, isn't it oh it is yeah
0: it, it is um, obviously I could talk about things that neither her a sister or a mother had ever heard from anybody before because the the male influence <coughs> was strict Roman Catholic oh yes yeah and, uh, this was totally different yeah totally different yeah. and I, I introduced Pauline to the Chinese community in Liverpool as a, as a with privileged access as well, which no one else was getting at that time mm. There were, that was all a new world, wasn't it?
1: Oh, completely new world. Yes, I mean, wonderful, really, in many ways, because uh, it was not a nice environment to grow up in, I have to no, say.
0: No. I thought I had to get her out of that place. I had to get her away from that mm. negative animus. I knew what the animus was. I could see what was going on, saw potential in her, and I thought, I'm getting her out of here. And that made that my task. And mm. Introduced yeah. her to Young. Yeah. And then... Uh, that was the beginning of the start of our lives together.
1: But my father was very against it. Oh, yeah. My mother was supportive in the beginning and then she turned and uh, probably because she had her own difficulties, but uh, she withdrew her support. Yeah, she did. And made yeah. things very difficult. Yeah. And I can remember at 16, go one night going out the back door and slamming the door and hearing my dad say, if you go out, leave this house now, you don't come back in. And um, I was 16. And she I thought great down. i've uh, I have no desire to come back in thank you yeah. very much so uh I went and uh stopped off at John Kane's.
0: yeah the... me there
1: yeah <laughs> yes yeah yeah, yeah. I let my family know I was safe but uh yeah that was it
0: yeah he was uh, a pain in the backside <clears throat> need to say the least yes yeah I mean, it's our anniversary tomorrow we be thirty nine years married tomorrow but he uh said to her, Two days before a wedding, what are you going to do about this wedding of yours? That was yeah. that was his impulse. Yes, he'd already been down to because Pauline was Catholic and I had an Anglican background, nominally Anglican. I was nowhere near Anglicanism at that at that point. Uh, we'd arranged a joint wedding, so there would uh, and and the Catholic priest involved was someone who worked or you know, had his base, if you like, his his, <clears throat> his presbytery on an area where i had policed and he mm. knew me and he trusted me. Oh yes. Uh, her mum and dad went there and uh, tried to get him to to not they marry us. They actively tried to stop the wedding. A few days they before did, the yeah. wedding, yeah. the priest told them where to go. <clears throat> and even uh, my colleagues in the police station, uh, they said, if he turns up here giving any trouble, he's going over the desk and into the cells. And uh, David Mensis they, yeah, they would have well. done in those yeah. days. Oh, yeah, they would have been just grabbed and pulled over and, <laughs> and then slung down the corridor, <laughs> kicked a few times, banged his head on the door to open it, the uh-huh. steel door, uh, and then progressively through several yeah. other steel doors. Until it, but they were, it was a different different kind of police force then, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Both of people knew that we were right for each other and that we would proved that...
1: But they made it very hard for us. They did. They, they they really did, and for a long time afterwards as well. Oh yeah, many years. Prob- probably yeah. up until their, their deaths. Actually yeah, both of them, death. Actually, respect death when I think both about of them. it.
0: Yeah. So I, w- I was in the police. Pauline was at school, um, and my career ambition was towards being a psychotherapist, and so also studying with the Open University, studying psychology to augment <clears> my. Yeah, my own studies, which uh, I found their courses to be better than pretty much anything I did elsewhere. Do you want me to? Shut up! They won't, mate. No. Depending on the time, that's what. They I are thought. a nightmare. Yeah. Jack Russell.
1: Yeah, just needs a good kick, doesn't it?
0: On the left, mate.
1: Yeah he's coming from there. He's probably gonna car. Yeah. CV <laughs> guns in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An assault rifle. He would be just, it just wouldn't be difficult to see, I'm would he just go now. back in time?
0: Just about to start on the uh the psychotherapy career. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, so um it was it was time to think seriously about developing the psychotherapy career forward um as i say done the open university i I later went to Liverpool Polytechnic which became uh, Liverpool John Moores the open university courses were superior in every single way to anything i experienced then or even when i did the two years occupational therapy training too Uh, brilliant you can't get those courses i've tried to get them again because they were so good Mm. it'd be useful to use even Mm. now for people can't get them but the neuroscience they did was excellent, and I learned a lot from uh, Professor Stephen Rose at the OU, who was part of the Dialectics of Biology group, but that's later in the story. He influenced my mm-hmm. thinking massively. But I knew I had to get practical experience. I'd been working on myself recording dreams since I was a child. I'd been working with Pauline and work with colleagues at work, and I thought, I'm going to have to get get stuck in here and I went up to our park hospitals and through a psychiatric social worker who was a psychotherapist, uh, got a placement approved of by the the chief psychiatrist for the district who was a professor um, and the clinical psychologist, the chief clinical psychologist. And I sat in with them and worked with them for about three years, Mm. getting frontline experience whilst I was uh, doing my studying with the open university. And oddly, uh, even though in the police uh, they thought that it was very odd that someone should be doing that in their spare time as a voluntary uh, uh, therapist, um, I got support in it from some of them anyway. Um, I've still got a staff appraisal from I think it's 1984, where a sergeant's uh, you know and Billy he's a oh, friend Billy, now Billy yes, Thompson do, yes. uh, he didn't get on with him at the time. Mm. Uh, so I think he's nurturing thoughts of another career. Wrote them uh, and the inspectors and that's because of his. Uh, voluntary work at the hospital psychiatric voluntary work um you could see them not you know, but they actually funded my open university uh courses uh which was really nice of them mm. but yeah that sergeant was right i did nurture yes, both of another career he was of I, I was on my way out as much yes. as possible and we, we did more training as much as we could we also met john kane yeah. who you mentioned uh who was a healer uh, who used mesmeric and hypnotic techniques. But it was amazing paranormal phenomenon occurred there. And we worked with him as well, didn't we, for five years, yeah. getting frontline experience of woo-woo, real <laughs> woo-woo, those <laughs> solid uh, energy projection, life-transforming woo-woo and, and paranormal stuff. So we were getting loads of experience, weren't we?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you very kindly kind of kept on in the police while I was training to be an occupational yes. therapist didn't you and we had, a, well, we had a home yeah. we, we had to, to, yeah. to pay our way yeah. Yeah. um and so we kind of uh, ran that in parallel really didn't we, we with, did. with my training and yeah. but it extended the time that you were stuck in the police, really unfortunately
0: it did yeah it, it, it did but we, we, we always had that partnership that we would help one another and help in, in growth uh, you know, when we'd be analysing each other's dreams and we have been right from the beginning uh, and studying and working hard, working with other people <clears throat> balancing different jobs Yeah. moving forward we actually delayed having a family for 16 years because we wanted to be sure or as sure as we possibly could be ourselves that we were in a fit state to have children because it's an onerous responsibility beyond just the biological instincts to reproduce, to create human life and then to take the responsibility to nurture that Individually. Yeah. So well, I think
1: we wanted to be happy in our respective careers. We didn't well, want that yeah. to be something that's spilt over into family yeah. life. Or as happy as, as anyone as possibly to be. be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, a lot happened. An awful lot happened in the police. A tremendous amount happened. Um, actually, I don't know if this is the right time to talk about. Um, went through a hell of a lot.
2: Mm.
0: An awful lot. I have mentioned some of it before yeah. i don't know if yeah. it's if it's right to discuss it now yeah, that bogus psychologist and um yeah there was there was one guy who uh i was introduced to who was a fake a complete bogus fake and this guy had taken in all sorts of police officers uh senior police officers in the special branch which is anti-terrorist um, branch of the police at that time, um, and he was giving counselling to them in their marriages and also to their children, and he was supplying Valium, diazepam to them, benzodiazepines. Yeah.
1: He had all sorts of psychological questionnaires as well. Oh, which he was I don't know where he, you know. Oh, yeah, he, 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 he got uh, them from, I, but I, he did. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And he
0: had a, a forged PhD, uh, which he used. In connection with Liverpool University and others, even though would you believe, it was a forged University of Liverpool PhD certificate. Mm. It fooled them. Mm. It fooled Dennis Basil Bromley, professor of psychology at the University of Liverpool, <coughs> because they let him work there. It's yes. uncanny, but they did. And I was introduced to him because this Bobby who knew him. This police officer who knew him. I knew I was, I was doing uh, the Open University and I was working up the hospital and all the rest of it. Um, oh, you have to meet him. He's this, he's that, he's the other. And I did meet him and he was extremely plausible. Partly because I'd been briefed, if you like, to expect him to be that way. But he did slip up. He slipped up because he said one thing and it, it was simple but it, it was too incongruent not to be an issue. He thought that uh, Gestalt was a person. Not a school of therapy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, did he just say that? So I engineered him saying it again, and I confirmed it. It wasn't a slip of the tongue. It wasn't a mistake. He actually didn't know that Fritz Perls was the founder of Gestalt Psychotherapy, and that the guy who founded that particular school of therapy wasn't called Gestalt. Like, Sigmund Freud was the founder (laughs) of Freudian psychoanalysis. Some guy called Gestalt, (coughs) and he claimed to be a Gestalt therapist. Founded that, and I thought I came home and I told Paul, I said, This guy's a fake, Mm. Uh, there's no way Mm. he could make that mistake in that way. So I knew he was treating police officers, families, and children, and I also knew that he had an issue with his own daughter because she wouldn't sleep in the house with him. So I approached uh, the CID, the Jacks, as they're called the Merseyside police, and they are a bunch of Jacks. about doing something about it and immediately they closed ranks and I was threatened by (coughs) a detective chief inspector implicitly threatened uh, and they wouldn't cooperate with the investigation so I went to the sergeant who wrote that uh, thing of his I think he's nurturing uh, the idea of another career who was ex-regional crime squad which were elite detectives and I gave him information I had and he said okay the jacks aren't going to help fine you're getting pressure from the uh, senior CID Um, I'll go to the drug squad we'll get a drug squad warrants we'll do a raid on his house we'll get everything out we'll find out what's going on with his daughter and take everything else out he had went in there he had a primitive computer you know not nothing like what it is today got the computer got all all the records got all these written files cases that he, he had on police officers wives and others um took them away found the the benzodiazepines got them as well and the cid had a fit with me and uh, they immediately jumped in and took over the investigation and what do you know all the evidence started to disappear not at once but incrementally Mm -hmm. till there was almost nothing left and uh, i made the arrest Uh, i I brought him in for, for questioning and then he was interviewed by the CID after that and this detective chief inspector said to me well he's not a moore's murderer is he i said we don't know what he is because we haven't fully gotten into this yet and uh you could see he was agitated then he cornered me again on the later days and he, he said bluntly this would be better for you if this didn't go any further and i said i'm sorry but it is i'm not going to give up on this then i was told Drugs will be found in your locker or stolen property. You're a marked man. Mm. You give it up. Said, no, not going to. Refused. Um, and we eventually got it to the Liverpool Crown Court. And uh, Brian Levinson, who's now Lord Levinson, of the Levinson Inquiry fame, who, who, who was uh, a QC who dealt with the IRA, that senior level QC, knew the sergeant who'd supported me and he got him to prosecute on behalf of the police and he embarrassed the cid all the senior detectives and said pointing to me he said that young man i was young then that that young man should have been a barrister not a police officer Uh, he's got a really good first class forensic mind he should be a police he should be a barrister and he said i'm taking this case on uh, for the police Uh, i will prosecute for the crown wow But in the end, because all the evidence had gone, all they could do him for was having a forged PhD and uh, uttering a forged instrument under the law as it stood at that time, uh, for which he got um, nine months with six months suspended. But it made the local papers, so it's a matter of public record. And there was another case, a murder inquiry as well, again, where the same detectives were involved. Uh, I'd actually solved that case and got the guy to surrender himself to me at the police station Uh, i was written out of the out of that job completely um violent man he killed a man with a single punch killed him stone dead found the body and found a domestic dispute linked the two together tracked him down found his wife washing clothes at four o'clock in the morning Mm. because they were bloodstained and she admitted it but there were stacks of pornographic magazines on the table and the cid were with me all they were interested in was the pornographic magazines, and uh, told me to knob off while, so to speak, whilst they spoke to. Her. And I said, "She's just destroyed evidence." Oh, never mind, never mind, never mind. Reading through the porn magazines. Okay, I get it. You know, um, such was the state of the police service at that time. But after that, I was a marked man. Uh, they were gunning for me. That did happen. Oh, they tried it. It did not succeed. Um, but I'd had enough, I knew it was only a matter of time, I was gonna get fitted up. Mm. So uh, I went, which was opportune, because Pauline was in, I think, last year then, weren't it? Yes, he? pretty uh, much so. Uh, yes, doing I occupational was, yeah, therapy. about to
1: start work,
0: yeah. So uh, I jumped mm. off the Open University and went to John Moores, or mm. Liverpool Polytechnic, as it was at the time. And then after that, I jumped off that, because OT was really interesting, occupational therapy, because you were doing all the anatomy, physiology, and so yes. forth. Um, which I knew was important. Uh, so I ju- jumped off and got into that. I didn't really like the culture, but I liked the the the, the topics. And it got us to Peter Nixon and Charing Cross cute. in London. It got us access, Pauline had already been in touch with him. Mm-hmm. And we've been building our model up as well. We knew that Young's model had to be extended uh, and developed. And our aim was to get this into frontline healthcare, which was psychiatry with yes. Pauline, and myself into GP practices. Uh, which is what we subsequently did, and that's the next phase of development of the model. But up until this point, that's a, a sketch, if you like, a, a, of where we'd come from. I've, I've, I've faced the threat of firearms unarmed. I've done that. Um, I've had people try and kill me. I've had plenty of people die in front of me violently on the floor or in road accidents. Um, I've had a colleague die violently on the floor uh, in front of me. I've been hospitalized Christ knows how many times. Uh, ranging from being jumped by gangs, having dogs set on me, hitting the head with a lump of concrete, had bouncers attack me, um, I, I've had some of them with knives come at me, I, I've, I've confronted a, an armed drugs dealer who was in a Rolls Royce, um, I've confronted people who were IRA suspects, chased them, <coughs> uh, he was on a motorbike and I was in a car with another police officer and before we knew he was armed, a, a guy at a petrol station fork up with a gun, we were unarmed, and um, I've sat in a safe house, this, this, this should be all right now. I've sat in a, a safe house where Special Branch had put an IRA informant, had lifted him out of Ireland, put him there, and there was a hiss on him and it was supposed to happen that night and he put me in there, very nice. As a young uniformed officer to sit there as the dummy, you know, whilst they allegedly waited around the corner with the <coughs> guns in case the IRA turned off. I've done that, um, I've had to deal with violent, in one case a murdering paedophile, uh, that was not nice. I, I, I've had a lot and then, you know, it's uh, what got me, two things got me through that, my relationship to Pauline and Carl Jung. Jung gave me the, the moral compass and Pauline gave me the animating relationship and spirit and presence to be able to deal with what was an ongoing existential nightmare and compared to that, working, to be honest, uh, in a psychiatric hospital with all of its controls, that was easier and better because the outcome, the reason to be there, there was no ambiguity. <clears throat> in the police, people who are on your side are just as often against you and it can switch like that. And I know it can with psychiatric patients, but at least the intention in mental health is that you're there to help without the expectation that at any moment you're gonna have to get violent to save your life and take this other person down or uh save someone else or whatever it may be um there's there's, there's a lot there's a lot in there and uh, i mean the uh, yeah i've, I've been in a, in a vehicle on fire trapped in a vehicle on fire in the middle of a riot with um injured colleagues all around me um not nice not nice although in that riot and again it's, i have mentioned this in, in other podcasts in 1977, uh, I, I had a dream, Sound like, you know, Martin Luther. Uh, but I did, and there was a street called Upper Parliament Street in Liverpool, and in the dream, it was brilliant light, daylight, and there was a line of police officers from building line to building line, and there was smoke and flames, and one building on particular, on my left, was on fire, and in the first story, above the ground floor, out the window, it was a trapped Chinese family trying to get out. And it was obvious there was a riot there, and I was on the right-hand side of the road, waiting in line <coughs> to join the line in front. Um, and I remember waking up from that, and it was so vivid. I thought, what the hell? What's that all about? I know lots of Chinese people, must be to do with that. Anyway, four years later, in brilliant sunlight, around six o'clock in the morning, we'd been in the, the opening day of the toxic riots all night. There I was. In that same position, looking at that building with the Chinese family, leaning out the window, screaming for their life, while everything was burning on fire. And this smoke damaged inspector, his face was black with soot, said to me, When somebody falls over, go and stand in the line in their place. And I turned to my mate and I said, uh, Well, if we're going to get potted, we may as well go down the same pot, down the same hole, so to speak. (laughs) you, you joining with me like and we both we both joined the line whilst that was going on there and then the guy either side of me and either side of him were ignited with petrol bombs and the fellow who replaced him was, was whacked in the shin with, with a steel pipe Um and I was hitting the head fortunately it just took the, the badge off my helmet and uh, I d- didn't get any further than that the, the last uh, night uh my head, uh, my helmet was shattered like an eggshell. If you can imagine what the impact must be like if you, uh, to do that, if you, you know, you think like a motorcycle crash helmet, it takes a lot really to put a, a fist sized hole through one of them. Um, that was how hard the blow I took inside the vehicle that was on fire when, when that was hit, and that was in exactly the same place, pretty much, that was in the embankment because, um. The guy driving the van, who I now think I thought he was an idiot at the time, He's he was a colleague, but uh, I kind of let him off because he was a colleague. There was a line of them with a telegraph pole, like a, a battering ram running towards the police vehicle. So what did he do? Started the engine up and drove at them. And you know, you get this kind of feeling of complete helplessness. It's like I'm sitting in the back of this vehicle here and this guy is driving straight towards a line of risers with a telegraph pole. That's gonna come through the windscreen. (laughs) And he went up the embankment at them and so they had the inertia of coming down, bang. Then the vehicle turned over, the petrol bombs were thrown at it and then uh, I bent down to cover my head and I held this enormous impact. Next thing I remember, I'm standing outside the van and Pete Worley, the sergeant, yes. said, uh, "He said uh, you've had a hell of a bang on your head, have I? Even, I didn't even put my I put my hand through the helmet, and then it started to go all dizzy." And he said, "Lie down on that shield, okay?" Because they they were the makeshift uh, stretchers. I lay down on the shield. and These two policemen <coughs> grabbed hold of the you know the like on a medieval shield that you'd have, and uh, I got sledded down the road to a waiting van, thrown in the back, and into Royal Liverpool Hospital, and it was full of people with heads split open, blood everywhere um, and in that month of rioting a thousand police officers were injured, a square mile of Toxteth was burnt down, um, so I, there's at least 70 buildings were destroyed. Um, but that was the end, I'd gone through a month of rioting up to that point. It was crazy, absolutely crazy and we were just about to get married and the guy who was our best man had been hit in the head with a spade it It got underneath his um his helmet mm. knocked him to the ground. they would opened a caligas can next to him and then started throwing petrol bombs at it to try and blow him up and uh he uh he showed up for the wedding and mm-hmm. did the photographs in that stage
2: yeah
0: yeah <sighs> sorry never forget that yeah and I didn't want to be there you know because we were on the streets of our home city fighting our own citizens and I thought what anyway there you go so that was that and you know anyone who goes through an extended period like that in a frontline occupation is going to be traumatized by something i have traumatized memories but um the amount of times pauline's had knocks on the door to be told that i'm in hospital or was uh, at that time oh he's in hospital he's had another head injury or whatever mm. it was because i've had more than one in that career um i don't know how she got through building up to getting married and she was 19 uh, and the public outside of the areas where it was rioting, rioting we were anti-police. And I was like, what were we even doing this for? It's uh, terrible. But uh, she was there for me, and we, we, we got through. But there you go. There you go. I know there's, there's other stories, but thats uh, they're like old war stories, really, aren't they? They're sometimes the best left where they were. Yeah, you were saying something, weren't you, Paul, just now?
1: Well, you, about the things that you've, you've lived through.
0: Well, we've lived through. That we've lived through. You've you, you defined it in a specific way.
1: Well, in so much as these are the things that make you want to do the things that you do to yeah. become a therapist. Yeah. Uh, I think it has to be that way.
0: Yeah, it's, it's part of this idea of being a hammered blade. Yes, you know, it is. Um, mm. The more you can go through, the better in many respects. And it is pattern welding. Life is pattern yes, welding. Yes, it is. By mm. year, by decade, layer upon layer. Um, and that builds up strength. Uh, it also builds up layers of wound. You know, um, yeah. But that is the, a lived life. And that's what you draw upon. Yeah. Uh, not on theory, not on speculation, but on a lived life. And there's no getting away the gaining of that experience. You have to get it.
1: Yeah. The best work is done that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so I came out of the police. I, I went straight into John Moore's. I could have waited another year and gone to Liverpool. <sighs> the, the reason I didn't, or two reasons. <laughs> the two reasons I didn't go. Um, one was I didn't want to wait a year. Uh, The other one was Professor Dennis Basil Bromley, uh, the one who'd been taken in by that guy, uh, the bogus PhD, because I actually had to go and interview him, uh, take a statement from him at the university and the university's registrar. And that was embarrassing for him. And I thought, I don't really want to jump out of the frying pan and into the fire by making myself vulnerable to another set of establishment (coughs) figures after having uh, stood up to the others. It would have been too much of a continuity issue. So uh, I went to John Moores and I jumped off ship from there and on to OT mm. uh, for two years, where we continued to develop the model through contacts that were opening up. Um, Pauline had mm-hmm. been in touch with Charing Cross. Uh, we went down there. I, I did some OT training down there as well. Pauline came down to some of that, although she was already managing psychiatry at the time. Um, we were making contact with the likes of Anthony Stevens, George Engel, um and I say building up this core model and it was then that psychosystems analysis as we know it today was born, we brought through hypnotherapy as well into that and our experience with that, um, all of my uh, psychiatric work at the local hospital, um, our personal developments, linking everything into one approach and it became clear really, it had been clear before then but really clear that the orthodox Jungian approach couldn't cut it in the front line uh, and we had to modify it. We had to bring other things into play. But even in an occupational therapy, we got problems from the establishment. Well,
1: we, 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 we had hoped to establish it within occupational therapy mm-hmm. because they, they were struggling to find a model of practice themselves. Yeah. And this would have been ideal because given that they, they wear green uniforms, we were kind of using the metaphor that it could become... You know the green profession, the green therapy, uh, the yes. green therapy. Yeah. and uh, it, you know because the actual training for OT is very broad, and and in yeah. that yeah. regard, yeah, it it was an, incredibly useful. Was yes,
0: you have to do medical and surgical placements. Um, yes, you can do things as diverse as rheumatology, dementia. You can. Yes, Pauline specialised in mm. psychiatry when training, and then went on to be a, a manager in psychiatry where she deployed this model. Um, but i was i was a few years three years behind her pretty much yeah i was was three years behind on that um she already had a professional reputation and a lot of them were very misanthropic should we say Mm. um and they didn't like the fact that i was bringing these new ideas in they didn't like it so much that they liked the ideas and not me and wanted to push me out the equation and own it themselves and oh, that yes. led to <clears throat> issues that went as far as legal. We went to solicitors in the end uh, because of the way that that was mishandled mm. um, and then I just said sod it we're off and uh, we went. Well, I went first then Pauline went followed me once I'd uh, moved yeah. fully into uh, GP practices. Yeah. And we developed from there, I'd already uh, opened up connections with the then British Association for Counselling, now the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy. Uh, I was on their Consultative Council. Paul and I were both uh, media reps for them. The United Kingdom Standing Conference on Psychotherapy that became the UK Council for Psychotherapy. We were delegates there to the Humanistic and Integrative Psychotherapy section. That's another political story, another battle. Yeah. we were a founding organisation of the European Association for Counselling, which they still recognise. There's all the material that you can see on, on the Discord and the library, all the documentation, all that frontline work and, and, and really heavy, full-on uh, processing started at that point. Yeah, it?
1: it was the beginning of our clinical work together, wasn't together. it? Which we'd always wanted.
0: Yeah, we'd worked separately, but yes. it was just together. Yeah. Um, and we'd worked on one another. But it was, it was hard, wasn't it? It was hard going.
1: It, it was incredibly hard because, of course, there was no internet at that time no. either. So no. in, in in that sense, everything took so much longer. And, and, and to try and get the resources that you needed was very difficult, learning resources. Yeah. So um, things took so much mm-hmm. longer back did. then, didn't they, to establish? They
0: did. We, ha- we had um, the support of Charling Cross. Yeah. Um, for at least 10, 12 years, whilst that department remained open, <coughs> actively supporting us. We are getting medical referrals, doctors and clinical mm. psychologists uh, were coming to us as patients. Uh, got a f- fantastic reputation for being really effective frontline therapists. Uh, really broadened out and, and opened up the horizons. Mm. Um, but we had a lot of trouble from the psychotherapy mainstream as well because they didn't like the fact that we were blending medicine uh with psychodynamics yeah. they were so anti-medical that yeah. was a huge battle mm-hmm. but uh we won through in the end in that as well um and it went on and on and on uh, and we continue to this day that's it in broad terms i guess uh, although of course there's all the respiratory mm-hmm. psychophysiology mm-hmm. i the capnograph and our use of that and it's, it, there is so much there is decades and decades of, of hard slog and never giving up no matter what happens I'm pressure testing ourselves and when we had issues ourselves which we both have mm. for example when I left the police yeah um, I was I, I did I think I, I did I have a clinical depression because um, of what was done what was threatened uh, and the fact that I, it was up against my morals and my ethics I'd tried to take on the establishments at the highest levels and I couldn't win mm. but I tried mm and there was no way out, I left, that was a way out but the thing is, I'd lost in the sense that I hadn't beaten them despite having the moral high ground I couldn't win in that arena, the only way I could win was to leave Uh, and that was quite uh, a blow of a different kind because coming out, I lost the persona I'd had for so long
1: 13 years, which is a long time 13 years of frontline police
0: work um, the last seven years of which uh, I was working up at Arrow Park Hospital as well, which was a fallback persona. But there was a, a mismatch, a mismatch between the very uh, alpha male environment. Yeah, very and masculine th- it job. Was back there. at that time, mm. and then to lose that completely uh, did take a lot of adjustments. Yeah, and Pauline helped me through that. Otherwise, uh, I couldn't have got through. I honestly think I couldn't have got through without her, without having that relationship
1: well likewise myself with with the occupational therapy because my dad took ill during my training had several heart attacks and you know obviously the the family dynamics were difficult anyway and and, uh, actually it was the um, the psychiatric social worker and psychotherapist that you were working with that said to me whatever you do don't give Give up up your course and I never forgot that she was great she was
0: she was a a humanist, mm. but more of a, an old school yeah. person, really. He yeah. genuinely cared. It was very safe, warm, very warm, uh, genuinely cared, mm. genuinely interested in people. Um, I learned a lot from her, mm. I learned an awful lot from her. And she took people on intuition and on trust, but provided an environment within which you knew you shouldn't violate that trust. So it, it wasn't a case of like, here's trust, break it if you like. It was like, here's trust. And it'll be the measure of you, how you treat that trust, and then think about that as you move forward in your career. Yeah. Um, and then Professor Roberts, the psychiatrist, likewise imbued me with trust. The 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 one guy who I didn't get on with was the clinical psychologist, who kept saying that his fantasy role was being a policeman. I was just so, thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. Why, why would I want to be a, a yes. therapist when? It was if before. only you could have swapped jobs. It was, it was <laughs> glorious uh, CBT, which was doing nothing, Yeah. nothing at all. And uh, I was pushing Young, mm. which you thought was hilarious. But they all did. Well, okay. except for this, this lady, and Professor Roberts didn't mind that at all. And, of course, we had John Kane as well, the, uh, the woo-woo healer, the genuine psychic, <coughs> absolutely genuine, 100%. Five years' experience with him. Yeah. Uh, very warm man extraordinary man learned a huge amount from him as well lots of paranormal things happened in our lives by being connected with him i've mm-hmm. discussed a lot of these on, on the earlier podcasts no point going there again but it, all of these things build don't they, they build in they do. you and of course there was franz young as well and uh, he was and he considered himself to be the guardian of his father's heritage his family heritage that was absolutely clear regardless of uh, how any of these senior young analysts might have been behaving down the road from Young's house he was the guardian of the family's heritage and some of the things that we shared with him we will not disclose Uh, but he did he did put his faith in us and he did that on the basis of an intuition which he said and secondarily by asking us about our dreams He had his own issues with his father, Uh, that's in the public domain, Um, anyone can follow that. It was difficult for him growing up with a father like Carl Jung, Um, but he knew knew his father's work inside out and he'd lived it in his own way. And he was very, very concerned about his father's reputation. In his lifetime, the Red Book would never have been published. In his father's lifetime, Carl Jung's lifetime, it would never have been published. It's been published. It shouldn't have been, in my view. Because that was not the wishes of the man and it was not the wishes of his son. Mm. Um, That should have been respected. Now that it is out there, unfortunately, it's fair game for criticism. That's the way it is. And uh, to be quite honest with you, other than it being... Mm. An exposition of him working through his personal myth i don't think it has much value because individuals have to find their own
1: yeah it had intrinsic value didn't it It had intrinsic value to him that's why yes. it,
0: he didn't want it published yeah. um it was not to be a public document we should make our own mm. red book or just not bother with that find another yeah. way of, of developing your life and that is super important that that should be done If we've done anything, we've done what we've done our own way and that has an authenticity to it and we would encourage anybody and everybody to do the same. You have to be the author of your own life. Um, Other people can be examples, exemplars even in some cases of how to do something, but you can't live their life by proxy. The authenticity comes from within and it comes from without in the sense of relating and I go back to that lady that I worked with at Arrow Park. Again, that's something which she was an exemplar of, was that more important than anything else was the authenticity of relationship to people who were suffering. Definitely. Yeah. With the goal of relieving that suffering. That's why you're there as a therapist. Personal development is different. You, know, um, you, you can indulge yourself in any which way you like. and I've followed that path. I've been through all the woo-woo, I've been through all the Eastern traditions, uh, all the Western philosophy, did all of that, been there, done it, and believe me, it's not where it's at. Yeah, we, as is commonly known by now, made a promise to him to bring his father's work within reach of ordinary people, and he supported that fully. He knew that that was different to how analytical psychology Jungian psychoanalysis however you want to refer to it is normally delivered. He knew there was a gap and he supported us in that to the end of his life but that was our intention, that was our purpose, that was our goal it was what we were actually doing. So this is important for you the next generation to realise that you're in that tradition rather than that enclosed, restricted, backward thinking and backward-looking tradition that has succeeded on from Jung into the present day. A lot of the critics of Jung, and let's be honest, there should be critics of any figure of eminence, because otherwise you're overshadowed by them completely. The, The critics of Jung now tend to suggest, and I think rightly too, that if we follow his thinking too closely, we are a hundred years behind where we should be. the most of Jung's ideas, his, his formative ideas, were set by the year 1920. Certainly his understanding of biology was fixed then, and he didn't bother to update it much, and that, that's moved on hugely. And we're now in an emergent field called neuropsychoanalysis, which is Freudian origination, uh, but which includes neuroscience, affective emotional neuroscience rather than the rather reductive cognitive neuroscience. We're very much in the same field as they are. They emerged in the 1980s. We did. Our emphasis was on clinical psychophysiology. We're very, very closely related. So close in fact that we think that that's the direction that we should be moving in ourselves to find a rapprochement with them rather than with the analysts, the original analysts, they frankly cannot be saved from themselves. They've put themselves into a state of irrelevance clinically and they are not moving forward. They've been infected by the political zeitgeist of the day, this current day, but this zeitgeist will pass and it will be replaced as that one will. What we should be looking for in the spirit of Jung are universals that do not change. So we should be interested in human nature as it really is, but not just psycho-reductive human nature. We should be looking at the totality of our being, which is biological, psychological, and social and environmental. All of it. And rather than being neurophobic, which is a term that I've been using quite a lot in correspondence with colleagues recently, and forming a Jungian-based neurophobic complex which a lot of the analysts suffer from, there should be active engagements with science. Young himself would have wanted that, but the science of his day, and in particular the day at which he fixed himself, the 1920s, and I know people will talk about Pauli. Yeah, Pauli was a great figure in some ways, but even in quantum mechanics only some of his ideas have stood the test of time. And remember, he was in analysis for 15 years, when he was working with young he wasn't in the best mental state himself nothing wrong with that it's nevertheless a fact so to, to draw on pauli and say that young was a scientist because of his association with him is a pretty weak argument when that's tested against other people other scientists from other disciplines who will look very dispassionately at young's claims to be a scientist The way to resurrect Jung as being a scientist is to bring his ideas into mainstream science, not to appeal to something which has not stood the test of time, either clinically or in terms of science. And with regards to his work with um, Pauli, and in particular the statistics that they came up with um, to do with some of the more woo-woo effects that they were interested in, they've been debunked. And if you attach yourselves to that, everything that's attached to you will likewise be rejected and debunked. We have to move forward with the times. I'm absolutely certain that Jung would have supported that. Franz Jung supported it. He knew this had to get within the reach of ordinary people. Absolutely had to, in order to survive. That's important. If you follow this model of psychotherapy and personal development, you will become yourself. You will be different, you'll be unique. You won't be me, you won't be Pauline, you won't be James, you'll be you but you'll be operating in a wider field, with other disciplines, other professions, other worldviews, in a synchronous and harmonious way, to generate the future, not to try to rehydrate the past. Doesn't work. You have to be yourself authentically. That's the best way to respect the memory of Carl Gustav Jung, and that was what his son wanted. So that would be our suggestion to you. Carry yourselves into the future. But to be a part of the future, you have to be working towards it. You have to arrive there. Don't live in the past, become yourself.